welcome to the War Studies podcast. We bring you world-leading research from the School of Security Studies at King's College London, the largest community of scholars in the world dedicated to the study of all aspects of security, defence and international relations. We aim to explore the complex realm of conflict because the study of war is fundamental to understanding the world we live in and the world we want to live in. Blair became so close to the Americans, it caused many to question if the UK was subservient to the US and if our interests were still best served being so close to them. Today we're joined by Dr Philip Berry as we discuss his new book exploring the inside story on the UK's mission to put an end to opium production in Afghanistan and what this meant for the US and UK's special relationship. It is a regime founded on fear and funded on the drugs trade. The biggest drug horde in the world is in Afghanistan, controlled by the Taliban. The arms the Taliban are buying today are paid for with the lives of young British people buying their drugs on British streets. That is another part of the regime that we should seek to destroy. These words are from Prime Minister Tony Blair's speech as he laid out his case for war in Afghanistan in 2001. The Prime Minister's robust public statement set in motion the UK's decade-long involvement in countering the Afghan narcotics industry, which ultimately proved an unmitigated and costly failure for the British. As 90% of the heroin on British streets originated in Afghanistan, the desire to combat the opium industry had merit. The real problem, however, lay not with the ambition to act, but a lack of reality about what could be achieved against a well-established drug trade in one of the poorest countries in the world. Although Afghanistan had a long history of opium cultivation, it was not until the Soviet invasion in the late 1970s and 1980s that the narcotics industry expanded significantly. Amid state and economic collapse, combined with the Soviet scorched earth policy that obliterated agricultural production, large sections of the rural population turned to opium cultivation. Opium is a drought-resistant cash crop that provides access to credit and a secure source of income, especially under challenging economic conditions. Given this, opium cultivation skyrocketed during this period. Then, in the 1990s, opium cultivation further expanded as warlords accelerated their involvement in the narcotics industry to fund the Afghan civil war. From the 1990s onwards, Afghanistan began a process of setting them breaking records for producing opium first under the Taliban regime, then more laterally and conclusively after the 2001 intervention. By 2001, opium cultivation was a mainstay of Afghanistan's economy, providing jobs and income for hundreds of thousands of farmers and supporting many more indirectly. Notwithstanding the benefits that the narcotics industry brought to the rural economy, it drove insecurity and corruption whilst undermining the rule of law. After Tony Blair highlighted the destruction of the opium industry as a secondary but important objective during the forthcoming intervention, officials were tasked with creating a strategy to match Blair's ambitions. But in doing so, they had to balance a variety of competing and complex demands in Afghanistan whilst under political pressure for Number 10 to demonstrate progress. Within 18 months of the 2001 intervention, the UK had launched a controversial policy to compensate farmers for destroying their opium crops, taken on the role of G8 lead nation for counter-narcotics and set an unrealistic governmental target to eliminate opium cultivation within 10 years. 
Hello, my name is Aisha Khan and I'm co-producer and co-host of the War Studies podcast along with my colleague Lizzie Ellen. Introducing our episode today is Dr Philip Berry, a lecturer in War Studies in the Centre for Defence Studies at King's College London. Prior to this, he worked as a researcher in the House of Commons. His research covers counter-narcotics policies in Afghanistan in the post-2001 era and what this meant for the UK-US special relationship in Afghanistan. Drawn from original research interviews with key policy practitioners on both sides of the Atlantic and material sourced from US cables and freedom of information requests, his book, The War on Drugs and Anglo-American Relations, Lessons from Afghanistan, published in 2019, reveals the inside story of how the UK and US formulated and implemented policies to try to stamp out opium production in Afghanistan between 2001 and 2011. It highlights the key points of cooperation and contention between the US and UK, explores why the policies fell so spectacularly, and details how these policies related to the contradictory and competitive objectives of the overall war in Afghanistan. So, if we look back at the foreign policy context of the early 2000s, the intervention in Afghanistan was launched as a direct result of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Do you think the UK's policy to counter the narcotics trade in Afghanistan was also a convenient excuse for the invasion? Or did Blair genuinely believe it was possible to both clamp down on terrorism and drugs at the same time? It's definitely the latter. Um, It's important to say that the UK intervened in Afghanistan for two primary reasons. First, to defeat al-Qaeda and the Taliban, which was tied to Blair's belief that international terrorism presented a grave danger to the West. And second, Blair firmly believed in the special relationship and that it was incumbent upon the UK to support the US uh, in Afghanistan. However, as the Blair government came to office committing itself to reduce the flow of illegal drugs into the UK, and the fact that over 90% of the heroin on British streets originated in Afghanistan, the intervention presented the government with, as one former uh, senior customs and excise official noted, a golden opportunity to try and cut the supply of heroin in the UK. So this was definitely uh, a case that they used this, they saw an opportunity and tried to act uh, against the drugs trade in Afghanistan. There were also other reasons why Blair decided to try and uh, combat the illegal narcotics trade in Afghanistan. One was he saw by linking this objective to direct benefits for the UK, it would make the intervention more palatable for a domestic audience. That said, Blair also saw destroying the narcotics trade as an important part of rebuilding the Afghan state and its political institutions after decades of war. Moreover, there was a belief that the Taliban were funded by the drugs trade and a suspicion at the time that so were al-Qaeda. And if that was the case, despite very little evidence to to demonstrate that, al-Qaeda may be able to use that money to fund more terrorist activities. That's really interesting. And I mean, to what extent was the narcotics trade helping to fund al-Qaeda and prop up the Taliban? Afghanistan is mainly supplied with their weapons from Pakistan. So was money from the drugs trade being used to buy these? As I said at the start of the show, uh, one of Tony Blair's justifications for the war was the Taliban was funded by the drugs trade. And as I just mentioned, uh, there was also suspicions that so so were al-Qaeda. However, 
to this day, the connection between the Taliban and the drugs trade is hotly contested and depended upon which agency or department in the UK or US you speak to depends upon the answer you get. For much of uh, its history, the Taliban have had a pragmatic relationship with the opium industry. They have, uh, to some extent, received funding from the narcotics trade through various means. But it's incorrect to say that the Taliban are in control of the drugs trade, and its policies towards the drugs trade vary from province to province. Um, It's also worth pointing out that the Taliban tax all commercial activity within the territory it controls. Uh, For example, it taxes all agricultural production. So the picture is just not as straightforward as uh, Prime Minister Blair pointed out in October 2001. And moreover, officials with uh, either direct or indirect ties to the government are just as much, if not more, involved in the narcotics industry than the Taliban. However, this uh, thought that the Taliban are involved in the drugs trade, particularly in the US, has been a key reason shaping uh, many policies. And many in the US have pushed a a narco-insurgency nexus narrative. I mean, I just find it odd that such a big mission didn't really have clarity on what they were initially fighting. I mean, you were saying that even Blair's statements were were unfounded, but but I guess there you go, and the mission continued. So can you give us an idea of the scale of the challenge in destroying the narcotics trade in Afghanistan? Well, it's not so much that the, uh, just to pick up on your last point, that it was unfounded that the Taliban were involved in the drugs trade. Uh, they were involved, but to what extent is the big question. But much of that policy at the time was formulated by a very small group of people uh, close to the Prime Minister. And when Blair made his statement in 2001 to justify the war, the Foreign Office or the Department for International Development, two of the key agency departments responsible for counter-narcotics policies were not informed prior to that. So it's a very interesting decision-making process um, at that time. In terms of the scale of the challenge uh, in Afghanistan, it was huge. And this made implementing policies for both the UK and US very difficult. For instance, Afghanistan was and still is one of the poorest and most corrupt countries in the world. And by 2001, it had been in conflict for well over 20 years. Moreover, no Afghan government had ever extended its writ throughout the entire country, and many provinces were in the hands of warlords. So this made implementing policies uh, very difficult. So, as I said, Blair and his advisors set the ambition to destroy the Afghan narcotics trade. And in the policy discussions that followed, one controversial plan came to the fore. And that was MI6 proposal to pay farmers to self-destruct their crop, known as compensated eradication and under the codename uh, Operation Drown. The plan, however, was extremely divisive. And many of the counter-narcotics experts within the Foreign Office among other places, warned against its implementation. In short, they feared that compensating farmers would incentivise them to plant more opium in future years. Also, um, there was very few personnel in the provinces where most of the opium was grown, so there was no way to actually police the scheme, meaning it could be open to corruption. So they had to rely on warlords, basically, to administer the funds to the farmers. 
So against the advice of many within Whitehall, Blair approved this controversial proposal. Unsurprisingly, the scheme turned out to be a disaster. It did, in fact, incentivise farmers to grow more opium in future years and also suffered from widespread uh, corruption. And from your book, it's clear that Tony Blair seemed confident about the UK's ability, with the help from the international community, to destroy the narcotics trade in just 10 years. As you go on to discuss, this was rather misplaced confidence. Given what we discussed about the difficulties of enacting these policies successfully, where did this misplaced confidence come from? And what were critics saying at that time? Well, the first thing to say is that Tony Blair was an optimistic leader. Uh, he was attracted to the reasons why a plan could work, as opposed to interrogating the potential downsides to a plan. As I've said, there were many people in government, including the Foreign Office, the Cabinet Office, DFID, warning against some of these early policies. But Tony Blair chose to follow uh, different advice and was guided by the political need to act as opposed to the evidence. Uh, what I mean by that is it would be more or less inconceivable for the UK to be uh, playing such a prominent role in Afghanistan. They had this domestic agenda to stop the flow of drugs coming into the UK, but then they allowed farmers to grow opium un un unhindered. So there was a, a political need to act. But in terms of the 10-year time frame, Number 10 had repeatedly requested that the SEO formulate targets for what they wanted to achieve in Afghanistan and a timeline to achieve them. However, for some of the reasons we've just mentioned, um, SEO officials were extremely reluctant to provide any timelines um, for their policies in Afghanistan. However, uh, in June 2002, Tony Blair planned to use a G8 summit to encourage the international community to support the counter-narcotics mission. But to do this, he reckoned he needed a timeline uh, to sell to the international community. But officials had said to Number 10 that it could take up to or possibly even more than 30 years to make any significant progress against the Afghan drugs trade. Um, but as you can imagine, this assessment did not have the impact that Blair wanted. Therefore, his advisors told SEO officials to amend their projection to a more politically advantageous timescale. So, with numerous caveats, officials reluctantly suggested that opium cultivation could be eliminated in 10 years. However, for reasons unknown, uh, when Tony Blair attended this G8 summit, he did not actually lay out the timeline to the rest of the G8 leaders. And ironically, his press secretary, who was not in the meeting and thought Blair had told the international community of this 10-year timeline, informed the press about the timeline. So once it was in the public domain, the UK was then stuck with this unrealistic timeline uh, to deliver. So as your book explores, by 2004, these early attempts to tackle the narcotics trade had largely failed. Open production was at record levels and policies had come to a dead end. What went wrong? You're absolutely right. By 2004, Afghanistan was engulfed by record levels of opium. There were several issues. Um, in 2004, uh, Afghanistan was almost a forgotten war, and Iraq commanded the attention of both the UK and US. And as such, resources and focus uh, were diverted to Iraq. 
also in the early part of the campaign, counter-narcotics did not receive the attention or resources it needed, and it was separated out as a strand of policy divorced from the larger effort. It wasn't incorporated into a holistic plan, and many within Whitehall thought counter-narcotics was too difficult, and therefore it, they just did not know how to deal with it. But more importantly, uh, counter-narcotics policies were never going to succeed in a couple of years. This was a multi-generational problem. Uh, as I've noted, this is exactly the point made by uh, those in the FCO and other places at the time. So the second part of your book details how the US developed a counter-narcotic strategy. At first, the US refused to get involved in counter-narcotics operations, as it was focusing on hunting down al-Qaeda and Taliban operatives. But in 2004, it started to become more involved in counter-narcotics. Why the sudden change of heart? That's right. From the outset of the intervention, the US, with the Pentagon directing policy, refused to involve themselves in state-building activities such as counter-narcotics. However, by about 2003-04, the then Defence Secretary Donald Rumsfeld, who was a very influential figure in setting policy, accepted that Afghanistan had moved to a state-building effort. So this then allowed those who wanted to do counter-narcotics, such as the State Department and the US Embassy in Kabul and Congress, uh, to get more involved. Also, by 2004, opium cultivation had reached record levels, and therefore it became a problem that the US could not ignore any longer and leave to anyone else, such as the British. So they began to become more involved in counter-narcotics policy in 2004. Um, but this was not an easy process, and the US administration was bitterly divided about how to tackle the narcotics problem, and it was a very contentious issue. So with the US now involved, you just mentioned that the development of the US counter-narcotics strategy was very contentious. Did the Americans push a different approach, which was informed by their efforts to combat the Colombian drug trade? Yes, counter-narcotics was a very contentious issue within the US administration and broader Anglo-American alliance from 2004 to 2007. Each US department and agency involved in the process pushed their own agenda and it led to some bitter exchanges during the policy-making process. So the State Department and its Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs, otherwise known as INL, among uh, other actors, were vocal proponents of transplanting US policies from Colombia to Afghanistan. Of particular concern for these actors was that they thought the Afghan insurgency might morph into a revolutionary armed forces Colombia, otherwise known as FARC-style organisation, uh, with their operations funded by the drugs trade. Unfortunately, though, these actors' enthusiasm to transplant policies from Colombia to Afghanistan belied the vast differences between both countries. For instance, at the time, uh, Colombia was a more prosperous and stable country than Afghanistan, with the latter being one of the poorest in the world, as we've discussed. Colombia had um, established political institutions and law enforcement capacity, and at the time, the president was fully committed to the counter-narcotics mission. In contrast, Afghanistan's government was barely functional. Uh, its political institutions were shattered by decades of war, and there were questions about its president, Hamid Karzai's commitment to tackle the narcotics trade. Anyway, these points uh, were lost uh, on INL and State Department officials, and they proposed uh, implementing Plan Afghanistan, 
which had its roots in the U.S. Counter Narcotics Strategy for Colombia, Plan Colombia. And the most controversial aspect of uh, this policy was the introduction of aerial eradication. But as I said, the U.S. administration was bitterly divided over counter narcotics, but even more so over uh, aerial eradication. In 2004. Uh, the proposal to introduce aerial eradication was defeated due to opposition from the Pentagon and the, the, the then US ambassador, Zalmi Khalizad, um, who convinced President Bush that the Afghan president, Hamid Karzai, would not accept it. Um, interestingly, though, President Bush uh, himself was in favour of aerial eradication and was famously quoted as saying that he was a spraying kind of guy. But nevertheless, on this occasion, he deferred uh, to the judgment of uh, Ambassador Khalizad. And so the US developed uh, their counter-narcotic strategy uh, without aerial eradication in it. And as your book describes, the counter-narcotics effort stirred up considerable tension between the UK and the US. Where were the disagreements and what does this whole episode tell us about the special relationship? So undoubtedly, the, the most intense point of friction between the UK and US was over uh, widespread uh, and untargeted eradication, uh, but particularly the issue of aerial eradication, which means uh, flying a plane uh, over a field and spraying the field with um, a herbicide to kill uh, the opium. The problem is in Afghanistan, farmers also grow foodstuffs within the same fields, beside the same fields that they grow opium. Therefore, an indiscriminate application of herbicides from the sky would kill everything. Uh, this would generate widespread rural unrest and not help win the hearts and minds of the uh, population. This friction got worse after the UK assumed responsibility for Helmand in 2006. Um, Helmand was Afghanistan's uh, largest opium-producing province. So the, the British had to balance both their military campaign in Helmand and also the Kenton Arcotis campaign. When the US pushed for aerial eradication, this was uh, caused uh, a lot of tension uh, from 2004 to 2007. And whilst aerial eradication was first mooted in 2004 and defeated, it was always in the background. And to stop the US from introducing it, the UK agreed in principle to a more forceful eradication policy. Tension between the Allies reached a crescendo in 2007 when there was another record level of opium cultivation. This led INL, among others, to launch a concerted effort to introduce aerial eradication, and this led to some bitter uh, exchanges in Washington, London and Kabul between the British and Americans over this issue. The policy reached the very highest levels of both the UK and US government, and President Bush eventually approved uh, this policy. However, uh, the British were determined not to allow this policy to go ahead and played a considerable role in stopping the introduction of aerial eradication and, in fact, actually were helped by the Pentagon to undercut INL's efforts. In short, the British plan was simple but effective. They warned President Karzai behind the backs of the Americans 
that aerial eradication was going to be forced upon Afghanistan and pledged their support to President Karzai to try and uh, prevent the introduction of aerial eradication. In the end, President Karzai was the main decision maker and he rejected the plan, but the British assistance to him was very important in this. In terms of the actual, uh, what this means for the special relationship, it's fair to say that the partnership between the UK and US was uneven, and the aerial eradication issue shows that Britain fulfilled an active role within the alliance. Despite heavy pressure from the Americans, at no point did the British concede to US demands. That said, it's important to note that the US held considerable sway over the policymaking process, even though Britain was the lead nation on counter-narcotics. So in your book, you mentioned that when Tony Blair was replaced by Gordon Brown, the UK didn't have the same focus on counter-narcotics as it once did. What changed? Yes, yeah, so by about mid to late 2008, uh, counter-narcotics slipped down Britain's policy agenda. Uh, two reasons uh, caused the shift. Um, first is Gordon Brown replaced Tony Blair as Prime Minister. Number 10's interest in counter-narcotics diminished significantly because Brown wasn't as interested in this area as Blair. And because of this, this then gave officials who were opposed to the counter-narcotics mission in the UK the freedom to openly question whether or not the UK should continue with counter-narcotics as a, a priority area. There's also another very basic fact here. After six years of counter-narcotics effort, really no progress had been made, really. And by that time, the conflict had descended into a full-scale war. Previously, it wasn't considered uh, like that, and the British were uh, left ill-prepared to stem the violence in Helmand province where they had responsibility. Therefore, the most pressing objective for the UK was to focus on stabilising Helmand. And as I said, there was some question whether or not stabilising Helmand was compatible with also trying to deal with counter-narcotics. Uh, therefore, around this time, uh, counter-narcotics was downgraded in terms of priority. Um, although this didn't have an immediate um, impact on British efforts, it certainly led the way for the UK to reconsider its commitment to counter-narcotics. So, as well as a change Prime Minister in the UK, your book also covers the transition from the Bush administration to the Obama administration. How does this affect counter-narcotics policies in Afghanistan? Well, President Obama presided over a massive influx of troops and resources uh, to Afghanistan. But counter-narcotics was not the priority for the Obama administration in the same way it had been a priority for the Bush administration. Paradoxically, though, counter-narcotics received uh, more resources um, because of this just general increase in resources going to Afghanistan, and that resulted in some counter-narcotics gains during this time. Um, the other important development in the Obama years was that the US deprioritized eradication as a central pillar uh, as a strategy and uh, included within that, they stepped away from aerial eradication as a policy objective. Um, although it was never introduced, the Bush administration was very keen on it, but the Obama administration was not keen. Also, there was uh, much more of a focus at this time on interdiction activities and building up um, the rural economy and 
alternative development. We're now 10 years or so on from when the book ends. Policies and groundwork implemented by the UK, America and the wider international community seem to have failed and this whole episode seems to be largely forgotten about in government and by the public. Afghanistan is still the world's primary opium producer. Why did this decade of efforts and billions of dollars spent result in spectacular failure? You're absolutely right. Um, it has been a failure. The US and UK have spent over $9 billion on counter-narcotics policies in Afghanistan since 2002. But despite this, opium cultivation is at record levels. As we've discussed, Afghanistan is one of the poorest countries in the world. It's been in continuous conflict for about 40 years. So it's probably not that surprising that little progress has been made. Uh, the opium problem is a symptom of the disorder, not a cause. So without addressing a range of underlying issues, such as security, the rural economy, um, rule of law, corruption, uh, improving governance issues, progress will, will not be made. And again, as I said, the, this point was made in, in 2002 by the Foreign Office that solving the opium problem could probably take a generation or more. This uh, assessment did not have the political impact uh, that, that the leaders wanted. And so there was a real lack of realism about what could be achieved in Afghanistan. And there was also significant other failures in the Anglo-American approach. Um, one issue was the lack of consistent focus on counter-narcotics. Counter-narcotics generally only moved up the policy agenda when there were record levels. And th there were policy failures uh, as well in Afghanistan that had unintended consequences that actually has led to increased levels of opium cultivation. In short, though, I would say addressing opium cultivation in Afghanistan was and still is a very difficult task and one that can't be solved in a, in a short order. So we're now going to move on to our feature section of the podcast, where we look at the researcher behind the research and what compels them to explore their area of expertise in the world of war studies. So, Philip, I'm just really intrigued. How did you become interested in this particular area of research? Well, my book is based on my PhD research, but <clears throat> I first became uh, interested in Afghanistan during my master's. Uh, when I, I looked at Afghanistan and I wrote my dissertation on the war on terror. And from then, it's uh, evolved uh, and I've started looking at more aspects of uh, policy in Afghanistan. And in your research, what surprised you most in this area? Well, I think um, one aspect uh, surprised me at the start was that there were very few researchers looking at counter-narcotics policies in Afghanistan from a British perspective most were looking at counter-narcotics policies from an American perspective, but it was the UK who was leading the international community's efforts. So I suppose that was quite surprising. And why study this period of failure for the UK in terms of foreign policy objectives? Do you think it sheds light on the UK-US special relationship today and the decline of these two world powers? Well, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq are arguably the final foreign policy events of the century. 
uh, and both still cast a long shadow over UK and US foreign policy today. In terms of the special relationship, there's almost a paradox that under Blair and Bush, the special relationship was reinvigorated uh, and was probably back to the heady days of Thatcher and Reagan. But at the time, because Blair became so close to the Americans, it caused many to question if the UK was subservient to, to, to the US and if our interests were still best served being so close to them. I think there's no doubt that the UK-US special relationship has been on a downward trajectory uh, over decades. And it certainly hasn't been helped by uh, the Obama administration and more recently uh, by the Trump administration. But I think it's certainly weakening, that's for sure. And I also think that in terms of Afghanistan and also Iraq, they have left both the UK and US with uh, reputational damage and tarnished their image uh, throughout the world. So with most things, there's always um, a downside. So what would you say is the worst thing about research in this area? I suppose the fact that, broadly speaking, uh, Afghanistan has fallen off the map as a priority uh, for many countries. Obviously, it's been back in the news because of the US agreement with the Taliban and also now the, the beginning of the intra-Afghan uh, negotiation talks. But generally speaking, uh, Afghanistan is a bit of a forgotten issue. And within that, counter-narcotics policies feature even further down that list and is not really um, an issue of interest in the way that it once was. And so what's next for you and this area in particular? So I'm currently working on um, an article uh, looking at the drugs trade in Afghanistan. So uh, mapping which actors and organisations are involved in the drugs trade, how and where they operate in Afghanistan, and also looking at what the Taliban's relationship uh, with the opium industry is like. More broadly, I'm also writing several articles with colleagues in the Centre for Defence Studies. Uh, I'm, I'm working on one at the moment, looking at the military's contribution to the domestic counter-terrorism missions over the past 19 years. I'm also working on a, another article with a colleague uh, looking at UK policy in the Gulf region. With the same colleague, I'm also, um, we've recently submitted an article on the Conservative Party's uh, relationship with the Department for International Development in the context of the fact that it's just been subsumed by the Foreign Office. It seems like there's definitely more to come, not from just yourself, but this area in general, and we'll have to keep an eye out for the articles you publish. So I just want to say thank you for joining our uh, virtual studio. It's been a pleasure to have you. It's been a really fascinating chat. Thank you very much for having me, Aisha. Very much enjoyed it uh, and I'm happy to do so. You've been listening to the War Studies podcast, produced and edited by Lizzie Ellen and Aisha Khan from the School of Security Studies at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to receive regular updates, please visit our website, which you'll find in the podcast description. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on your preferred podcast provider. It really helps us reach more listeners. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on the War Studies Podcast. Podcast.